Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. We started our lecture on chapter 17 and seminar 16 by talking about what it's not about. And uh, that began with set theory and also led to the arithmetic of the sexual act. This is not what chapter 17 is about. But what chapter 17 is not about also gives us some great insight into what's cracking in the subsequent two chapters. So recall what we said 17 is not about. It's not about set theory, but there's great stuff in here on set theory and the articulatory possibilities that set theory reduces the numerical order of mathematics to, namely an order of ideal and idealized privileges around the unit. Set theory precisely is constructed to strip this numerical ordering of the unit. Mathematics in the field of set theory no longer has access to oneness, to the unit. The unit has no privilege in it, Lacan tells us in chapter 17. A privilege of unity, of corporality, of essentialness, of totality itself. And so what you had to hear is that set theory can teach psychoanalysts about multiplicity as a foundational element of theory and technique. But mathematics on its own, however revealing that may be, because it relies on a logic of the unit, would instead teach the analyst about oneness, assuming that a foundation could be had atop the unit, privilege given to notions of unity, essentialness, and crucially, totality. It's no coincidence that Lacan is bringing this up. Because at the end of Seminar 17, we get a vision of a stagnated analysis, which is also what we were talking about in the previous lecture. This idea that the analyst gets fixated on a purely imaginary division between truth and knowledge, which we tried to correct for with um, a revision or two of the interior eight that we start seeing figuring in Lacan's thought around Seminar 11 forward. And the possibility of uh, treatment at the level of identification and the impossibility of that ever revealing anything about the knot of the neurotic. Notice how Lacan puts it at the end of chapter 17. This treatment of identifications carries in itself no promise of resolution of what constitutes the knot for the neurotic. And so we asked ourselves, you know, what is this knot of neurosis? Lacan tells us he's not going to say anything about it. And yet we can kind of guess from where he goes immediately after saying he will not tell us anything about it. But what I mean is that because of what is involved in the nature of the neurotic, which is profoundly that he has asked what is involved in his desire, Replace the word asked with demanded, and we've got some headway here. 
Whether the psychoanalyst is complicit by sustaining without knowing it the foundation of the structure of the neurotic, namely by demanding that the neurotic speak to what's involved in their desire, that his desire can only be sustained from this demand. Now, I think what we should be reading this as is in terms of the interior eight and the big D on the right-hand side of that interior eight, right around three o'clock. The analyst becomes hypnotized, Lacan says. At the end, the analyst ends up by becoming the look and voice of his patient. Now, how are we to connect these two elements? In chapters 18 and 19, we get some good leads on how to connect this stagnated analysis regardless of the truth and knowledge bit, but really the focus of an analyst who has been hypnotized. And Lacan wants to point out, psychoanalysis begins as a break from hypnosis. And yet, not surprisingly here, it fails routinely by slipping back into hypnosis, but not at the level of the analyzant. In fact, at the level of the analyst. I would submit that both analyst and analyzant are rather hypnotized when analysis stagnates in the field of identifications. How that happens and what that looks like starts to become clear in chapter 18. And I'm moving fast here because I want to rock through chapters 18 and 19 together. Notice 18 begins by Lacan saying, hey y'all, I bet some of y'all might be philosophers, i.e. thinkers perhaps even thinkers that have confused knowledge of their own thought, etc., etc. You hear where I'm going with this. Thinking, then, is approximated with ideology. And then, at the bottom of the second paragraph, in chapter 18, seminar 16, we get the term that Lacan assigns to thought when it turns ideological, when knowledge is thought to progress, to precede the discussion at hand. This is the question that I posed under the terms of the subject supposed to know. Notice where Lacan goes on this topic. Next page. As long as the consequences, properly speaking, of a radical putting into suspense of this question of the subject supposed to know have not been tested, we remain in idealism, in a word in its most backward form. I would guess that this is the same idealism, the same privileged idealism, that set theory undermines in mathematics. Namely, that the foundational element in analysis here would be the unit, and not just any unit, but the omniscient, totalized, encompassing, complete unit that the analyzand projects onto the analyst and that the analyst is all too often hypnotically lured into. And Lacan's point here is that if you don't call that shit into question, you're going to wind up in that stagnated form of analysis, in a word, in its most backward form. In the one that, Lacan continues, when all is said and done, has remained unshaken in a certain structure and that is called neither more nor less theology. That's the risk, is that analysis slips back into theology. 
the subject supposed to know is God. Full stop. Nothing else, Lacan says. When the analyst plays God, analysis slips back into theology. This is absolutely crucial to understanding why Lacan is so drawn into set theory, why he keeps insisting that the big other doesn't exist. What he's trying to work at here now, it seems to me, are the clinical implications for assuming otherwise. The topic is extended into the next page, and with terrific effect as well. He asks, is it even possible for thinking to sustain the confrontation of the putting in question of the subject supposed to know? In other words, can y'all even handle this? Handle what Lacan is asking of the analyst. Regardless of what the analyst and projects when they show up to therapy and say, to the analyst, listen, you're the doctor, I'm the patient, fix me. You've got all those fancy degrees sitting behind your chair. You've got all these fancy books on your shelf. Look at all the knowledge you have. You're the new God. Fuck Google. Fuck ChatGPT. The analyst is God. And Lacan's critique is, y'all are all too ready to play that part to such an extent that he doesn't even know if it's possible for the thinking of the analyst to even put into question the subject supposed to know. And then he goes on, on page four of our translation, to rattle against psychoanalysis in this form. The fact is, and what I have to articulate, which is solidary with it, namely psychoanalysis, I can only manage by getting across, first of all, what I solicited from the analysts. At least to have an up-to-date discourse about what they are effectively handling. Call it what you want. Treatment, analytic experience, it is all one. And in this respect, their thinking remains backward. There's that word again, backward, to the point that it is easy to put your finger on the fact that it is when all is said and done, to one of the briefest forms of summing up the subject, that there are attached particular notions that are by no means harmless. This, according to Lacan, is a veritable degradation of what critical thinking has been able to touch upon. So the subject supposed to know is ideology at work, and when this creeps into analysis, we see a degradation of what critical inquiry, critical thought, namely ideology critique, has been able to touch upon. He's not fucking around at 18. He's trying to get right to it. Notice the top of page 5 as this discussion continues. And to say what is at stake in a really obvious way, I'll focus it on the terms of inside and outside that are evoked. That these terms are, of course, in Freud's discourse from the origin is not a reason for us not to question them in the closest possible way. So a summing up of the subject gives way to a discussion of insides and outsides. And you know how Lacan thinks about insides and outsides. Well, in terms of Klein bottles, in terms of Mobius strips, in terms of the interior 
eight that you can form by a single loop of string, but not without creating an overpass and an underpass, as you heard me say in the previous lecture. Otherwise, if we don't look hard at inside and outside and think critically when summing up the subject, we risk seeing being produced these sorts of deviations that hinder what might be glimpsed in analytic experience that is of a nature to nourish or at the very least flow into the essential question, that of the subject supposed to know. As long as the subject supposed to know before we know, has not been put in question in the most serious way, one could say that our whole approach remains attached to what, in a thinking which is not detached from it, is a factor of resistance. Because a defective conception of the terrain on which we pose questions inevitably leads to their radical distortion. So at stake here is a defective conception of the terrain on which analytic experience unfolds. And because the analyst has a defective conception of this terrain, all of the questions and inquiries and discussions lead to a radical distortion. Like I said, Lacan's not fucking around here in chapter 18. So if mathematics suffers from a fetish of the unit, that set theory helps them absolve by revealing multiplicity, not oneness, to be the foundation at the level of the set, at the level of the sequence, instead of at the level of the number. What Lacan is trying to do here is to help make a similar absolution in the field of psychoanalysis. Here, the foundational unit seems to be the analyst, qua subject supposed to know, as omniscient, as godlike, where now analysis is reduced to theology. He then is shifting and saying, okay, what happens if we start and continue with the subject supposed to know um, fantasy from the analyzand to the analyst and back again, as we wind up with a complete misunderstanding of the field of analytic experience where things unfold. What then is the accurate understanding of experience? Well, it's going to start by comporting the analyst with the big other. The big other doesn't exist, but the barred other does. Similarly, in analysis, it's productive to recall that the big other, the analyst supposed to know, doesn't exist. But there are numerous signifiers of the fact that the analyst is a barred other. And that's important here, especially when you recall the interior eight work we were doing and the maximal distance that the analyst is supposed to sustain between the eye of identification and that little d on the other side. Here again, we're thinking of the interior eight as developed at the end of seminar 11 and suggested by the diagram at the start of chapter 17, which is also an interior eight. As we've worked this stuff out, we come up with a fallen image of the analyst. The, the analyst must fall in order for the analyzand to stumble onward to their drive. What is the field in which the analyst falls and the analyzand stumbles? 
check out chapter 18, page 16, just under the wild and wildly illustrative simplification of the graph of desire that you see in the margins there. After all, it is not for nothing that these terms are manifested by little letters, by an algebra. Here we are again, back at math. What is proper to an algebra is to be able to have different interpretations. Now, you might ask a mathematician, and they might disagree. In fact, having a single coherent symbol, a mathematical algebraic symbol that, whose meaning doesn't waver, may be precisely um, what the mathematician strives towards. Lacan, though, sees that as um, not true. The fundamental truth of algebra is that its terms have different interpretations. So the term in question here is signifier of the barred other. Signifier of the barred other in the upper left-hand quadrant of the graph of desire can mean all sorts of things, up to and including the function of the death of the father. Not just any father here. Don't forget, we are still talking about God the death of God, but also the death of the analyst, as omniscient, as subject supposed to know. But notice this. But, however, Lacan says, at a radical level, at the level of bringing logic into our experience, and this is crucial here, logic, structure, mathematics, when Lacan starts turning towards these terms, logic and structure, he's going to try and do something different. Every time he brings this up, it's in order to generate a more radical turn on a very familiar topic. But at a radical level, at the level of logic and bringing logical insight, symbolic logic, true analytic thought into analytic experience, the signifier of the barred other is exactly if it is somewhere and can be fully articulated what is called structure. Sit with that for a second. The signifier of the barred other is exactly what is called structure. This is how Lacan understands structure, language, the symbolic, the big other. It is always lacking at some level. And we've been over this so many times in our last two series that I won't burden you any longer with this. But something is excised from the symbolic, from the big other. In the last couple of series of lectures, we talked about barred A equals big A minus J. And we talked about the co-construction of this barred other and the excised J in order to remind us that it wasn't like there was a big other that was whole and complete and then jouissance was taken from it, subtracted from it. That's not the case here. Structure for Lacan is always already incomplete. Language is always already lacking. The big other is always already, in fact, the barred other. You might even say that the big other is a fantasy conditioned upon the fact that we're surrounded by barred others. If one can in any term qualify as structuralism, and you know the reservations I have about this philosophical label, Lacan continues. 
It is insofar as the relationship between what allows there to be edified a rigorous logic and what, on the other hand, is shown to us in the unconscious by certain irreducible faults of articulation. There you have it. The articulatory possibilities that set theory introduces into mathematics bring with them a whole series of faults, faults of articulation, which you don't really have to hear as error. You have to hear as air, not error, but space, opening, aerations of sorts, faults as in fault lines, as in gaps of articulation. You can read that as intersections, relationships. One plus one always equals three in Lacanian psychoanalysis because there is the differential relation between one and one that allows them to be distinct and thus added together. That differential relation is a fault of articulation. You might even say that articulation is the very fault in question here. The differential relation is an element to be considered. But again, we've talked about that, so I'm just kind of reminding you of that discussion as we move forward. And what, on the other hand, is shown to us in the unconscious by certain irreducible faults of articulation, irreducible being very important here too, from which proceeds this very effort that bears witness to the desire to know. So there is that desire to know that we heard in the previous chapter emerging from the field of the unconscious, from this zero point of I do not know, which births a desire to know which brings us to the false consciousness of knowing that I think, self-consciousness being always false consciousness in this model. And then to specific S2s, to discourses. Again, think back to the model we were working with uh, in the last lecture. There's that desire to know. And then it's right back to perversion. Why? Because the pervert is the person that wants to make up for these faults of articulation. These irreducible breaks or aerations in structure in the big other, in the barred other, is preci are precisely the ones that the pervert tries to fill in. As I told you, what I defined as perversion is in some way the primary restoration, the restitution of the objet-a to this field of the big other. A return of perhaps the lost object of jouissance to the big other as long as we can recall that the return of jouissance to the big other provided by the pervert, we're not going to let that presuppose that jouissance was previously there, has been taken, and now is being restored at the level of the big other. But nevertheless, we're working through the logic of perversion here still. This is why I compared him to the man of faith, Indeed, ironically, to a crusader, he gives to God his veritable plentitude. Again, this is what's at stake in the logic of perversion, according to Lacan, is that the pervert is a man of faith in a field in which God is lacking. What does God lack? We know what God lacks, a God of his own. And in fact, even in the next chapter, we hear Lacan asking, in chapter 19, whether and to what extent God even has a God of his own. He jokes about this, that there would be an opportunity for him to sit down with a theologian 
and pick his brain and, and ask insidious questions um, of the type as to whether, for example, it is all that sure that God believes in God. Right? Lacan's point is that God doesn't believe in God. God lacks God. The big other does not have a big other. There is no other of the other. It's interesting that the question then would become whether God has faith. But that's not the passage in chapter 19 I want to call your attention to. It's a great one. It's provoking. But it's not the one that we want to focus on. Instead, in chapter 19, the fun begins on page 7. And we are back to the question of mathematics, in a sense. But here, focus strictly on that field of analytic experience that gets distorted and fucked up when the analyzand and the analyst both become hypnotized with this idealized version of the analyst as subject supposed to know. In what concerned the symbolic, it must be counted as at least one, the number one. For a long time, people believed that counting could be reduced to the capital O, one. To the one of God, there is only one. To the one of the empire. To the one of Proclus. To the one of Plotinus. That is why there is nothing excessive in our symbolizing the field of the symbolic here by this number one. Now, when Lacan says one, you also have to hear the U-N. We talked about this before, so I'm not going to go over it, but just remember this from our series on Seminar 11, that the one in question is also the UN at the front of unconscious. A negation, in other words, in addition to the French word for one. What has to be grasped, he continues, is that, of course, this number one that is not simple and which that was where the progress took place. People noticed functioned as a numerical one, namely generated an infinity of successors on condition that there was a zero. It's a great sentence, very clunky. Let's see if we can read it just clean. This one that is and of the symbolic generates an infinity of successors on condition that there was a zero. A zero point. And here we start getting to the inside of set theory. You can't have a one unless you have a whole series of other elements in a succession, in a set. Just like in order for there to be a first instance, that presupposes that there has been a subsequent second instance. In order for there to be a repetition, for instance, that repetition has to be linked to an original moment that at the time had nothing to do with repetition. It was just an event going off. But to be first suggests a sequential ordering. And here, on condition that there was a zero there first. And any time the zero comes up in Lacan's thought, your ears better prick. What then is this zero? This zero point that oftentimes is associated with the unconscious, as we heard in our last lecture. Here we've got a zero that is presupposed by any emphasis on the one. Next page. I therefore first defined objet A 
as essentially founded on the effects of what happens in the field of the big O other, in the symbolic field, in the field of arranging, in the field of order, in the field of language, sequence, articulatory possibilities in set theory, and so forth. Notice, though, the final qualification that he offers. In the field of the dream of unity, on these malicious effects in the field of the imaginary. What he's talking about here is the fundamental fantasy that comes with an understanding of the other, of the symbolic field, of the differential orders of language and the like, where lack can't be avoided, where lack shows up, where we're constantly encountering signifiers of the barred other. This, in turn, evokes dreams of unity, dreams of union, dreams of the universe of discourse that at the start of 16, we learned, doesn't exist. And these dreams are occurring in the field of the imaginary. Note that this implies the very structure of the field of the big O other as such, as I tried, thanks to a schema, to make you sense in more than one of my previous lectures this year. What is indicated here as an effect in the field of the imaginary is nothing other than the fact that this field of the big O other is, as I might say, in the form of objet A. In this field, this is inscribed in a topology that to image, because of course this is only an intuitive image, presents itself as holding it, not rendering it whole but punching a hole, drilling a hole, the hole left, a lack that emerges from a loss of jouissance that is the condition of possibility for the symbolic, for the field of the other. Lacan's been very clear about that as he uh, kind of rounds into the, the third quarter of seminar 16 here. And that word is back here again a hole in the big other, in the symbolic field, in the field of language that leaves a hollow, an opening of sorts, an opening that is designated by objet A. Remember, little a always names lack in our formulations. But also an opening into which little pieces of shit, little objects A, can be put so that they rattle around as iron due to magnets can in the vestibular system of a tiny shrimp we've discussed as elements in a vacuole a container of sorts in a plant cell can rattle around as that little piece of metal rock a bean can rattle around in a bell introducing these three elements that we have in the commodity. The shiny surface, the piece of shit inside, and the space between that shiny surface and the piece of shit inside. Here developing something very different from the image of Socrates again. The rustic old box with a shiny agalma, a prize of sorts inside. The image we have here in seminar 16, once more, is of something shiny on its exterior, 
with a slight piece of shit rattling around inside. It's the hold structure here. The holiness, if you will, in the best possible way that the commodity introduces into the discussion. We still have yet to see what can be made of this holiness. We're 19 chapters in. There are only a few more left to go in Seminar 16. Let's see if we can get there. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.